The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Medtronic. Medtronic is dedicated to the pursuit of life-transforming health tech. From AI to robotics and beyond, we're reinventing what's possible, and we're just getting started. Visit Medtronic.com to learn more. LinkedIn presents... Hey there, it's Tuesday. I'm Michael Kovnat. This is the Next Big Idea Daily, the show that brings you a daily dose of inspiration and information. Today, we're going to talk a bit about science and health with a journalist and best-selling author who spent his career diving deep on those topics. Gary Taubes has written six books, including the bestsellers Good Calories, Bad Calories, and Why We Get Fat. He's received three Science and Society Awards from the National Association of Science Writers and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Investigator Award in Health Policy Research. His latest book is Rethinking Diabetes, What Science Reveals About Diet, Insulin, and Successful Treatments. Now, you may not think this topic is for you, but in a country where about 11% of the population has been diagnosed with diabetes and more than a third of the adult population has pre-diabetes, it's a more universal issue than you might imagine. And Gary's research into diabetes suggests changes all of us may need to make in how we eat, how we think, and how we practice medicine. Here's Gary to share some of his big ideas. The Nobel laureate physicist Richard Feynman once famously described the first principle of science as you must not fool yourself and you are the easiest person to fool. Medical doctors don't have this luxury when they're treating patients because they have to make a diagnosis and decide on a treatment and often the patient's life and health depends on it. They have to accept that they may be fooling themselves, but they have to act anyway and hope for the best. This only becomes a problem after the fact because they want to assume that they did the right thing. They want to justify it, even as new evidence comes in suggesting they didn't. This is just human nature, but it gets in the way of medical science. One way to get around this is always to try to keep in mind all that you don't know. Not just the known unknowns, as former Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld famously put it, but the unknown unknowns. Not only what we know we don't know, but all the things we can't even imagine yet, but might turn out to be important anyway. In diabetes, you can see this happen in the history and how the physicians treating the disease might have done better had they kept in mind what they couldn't yet know. Until 1921, the only thing physicians could do for their diabetic patients to make them healthier was to convince them to avoid the carbohydrate-rich foods in their diet, breads, grains, starches, and sweets. These seem responsible for the symptoms of the disease, the extreme hunger and thirst, the constant need to urinate, the weight loss and emaciation that eventually would lead to death. But if patients didn't eat these foods, they could live much longer. For patients with what we now call type 2 diabetes, these were the older, heavier patients, they could live indefinitely merely by eating diets that today we would call keto or Atkins, high in fat and protein, and absent virtually all carbohydrates. In 1921, University of Toronto researchers discovered the hormone insulin and pioneered insulin therapy. It seemed to be a miracle cure for diabetes. Young patients with the disease we now call type 1 could be brought back from the very brink of death with insulin therapy. And so the doctors decided over the next few years that the best way to treat the disease, both variants of the disease, type 1 and type 2, 
was by letting patients eat pretty much whatever they wanted and then covering it with insulin, particularly with children. Let them eat what their siblings and their friends were eating, covering it with large doses of the drug. It made perfect sense, except for what they didn't know and couldn't know, the known and unknown unknowns. These were the long-term complications and effects of this approach. By the time doctors started seeing those, a decade later, with the tragic death of their patients still young from clogged arteries, kidney failure, strokes, and a host of other problems, they assumed it was because their patients weren't using enough insulin or using the insulin properly. They couldn't imagine that their patients might be getting sick and dying because they let them eat whatever they wanted and assumed that a drug therapy, insulin, would keep them healthy. Had they been able to keep in mind all that they didn't know, they might have been more open to other approaches, perhaps the right answer in therapy, when what they didn't know came crashing in upon them. First ideas can't be allowed to take precedence. A common problem in science is that the first reasonable explanation proposed to explain some phenomena fills a vacuum in our understanding. We go from having no idea why something is happening to having a possible explanation. The more important the phenomenon, the more it relates directly to human health, the more desperate the physicians will be for a way to explain it and for whatever therapy or means of prevention that it implies. But what happens if the first idea is wrong, as it very likely is? Replacing an idea that has filled a vacuum with a better idea is a lot harder to do than filling the vacuum in the first place. Once people decide that that first idea might be right, they start to assume it is. They base their lives on it and their research on it, and they make decisions based on it. And so they can't imagine that it might be wrong. Worse, they can't imagine that they might have been wrong. Again, this is human nature. In the history of diabetes, this problem played out repeatedly. For instance, in 1889, a German scientist named Oskar Minkowski famously realized that an organ called the pancreas plays a major role in the disease. When the Toronto researchers purified insulin from the pancreas and demonstrated that it lowers blood sugar, the diabetes community assumed naturally that diabetes is a disease of insulin deficiency, and the problem organ is the pancreas. To a great extent, they still think this way. That's why they rarely question their use of insulin therapy, because they think of this approach as merely adding back what's missing. By the 1950s, though, it was clear that the liver plays a critical role in type 2 diabetes, which means in 90 to 95 percent of all cases. By the 1960s, it was clear that type 2 diabetes isn't a disease of insulin deficiency, but of insulin resistance. Cells in the body become resistant to the action of insulin, and the pancreas responds by secreting too much insulin, not too little, the opposite of what physicians had assumed. Also clear by the 1960s that another hormone, this one called glucagon, plays a critical role in the disease process. In other words, our conception of the cause and mechanisms in the great majority of all cases of diabetes changed dramatically but it had virtually no effect on diabetes therapy because doctors kept thinking of the disease the way they always did. Had they allowed themselves the luxury of holding on to their ideas tentatively, particularly those ideas that came first when they knew the lesson, the least about the subject, they might have been able to let go of their incorrect ideas far earlier. Their treatments might have done far more good and far less harm. Pay attention to all the evidence, not just the evidence we agree with. 
This insight dates back 400 years to the British lawyer philosopher Francis Bacon, who inaugurated what we think of as a scientific method. Bacon pointed out that the key step in any science is testing ideas, ideally in experiments. And then when we do those tests, the key is to pay attention to all the evidence they generate, not just the evidence that supports our opinions. In the lingo of science, we have to pay attention to the negative evidence even more so than the positive. In diabetes, this problem again played out repeatedly. In the early 1970s, for example, a man named Richard Bernstein became the very first patient with type 1 diabetes to test his blood sugar multiple times a day to help him understand his disease and how to treat it. Bernstein had been diagnosed when he was 12 years old and he was now approaching 30. He had been religiously following his doctor's orders and how to treat it, but he was also suffering ever more from the diabetic complications and knew his diabetes was killing him prematurely. He had three children and he wanted to prevent the inevitable as long as he could, so he got a hold of a device that allowed him to test his blood sugar at home and it worked to see how it responded to the insulin he was taking, the foods he was eating, and even the exercise he was doing. He realized he could keep his blood sugar essentially normal, levels of a perfectly healthy person if he didn't eat any carbohydrate-rich foods, and then he could get by also on very low doses of insulin. Bernstein, who prided himself on his networking skills, almost single-handedly convinced the diabetes community that having patients check their blood sugar multiple times a day would keep the patients far healthier and their blood sugar under much better control. In the early 1980s, the National Institutes of Health funded a huge clinical trial that Bernstein got credit for motivating. But the researchers only tested the self-blood glucose monitoring. They didn't want to get into the diet issue, so they told participants in the trial only to measure their blood sugar and then use as much insulin as necessary to keep it under control. It was a test of what these diabetes specialists called intensive insulin therapy, not Bernstein's full program. And when the trial ended and the diabetes researchers realized that intensive insulin therapy delayed some of the complications of diabetes, known as the microvascular complications, they hailed it as the greatest breakthrough in the field since insulin. But the diabetes specialists paid little attention to the way that intensive insulin therapy failed. Patients got fatter, for instance, and were more likely to become obese, which would mean their diabetes would get worse. The intensive insulin therapy caused more disconcerting and dangerous episodes of low blood sugar. And the intensive insulin therapy didn't bring blood sugar down to normal levels, as Bernstein's approach did. It just made the patients less unhealthy. In many ways, the trial demonstrated all the ways that intensive insulin therapy failed, but the diabetes community only embraced the one way they could see it as a success. So they never tested Bernstein's ideas fully, even while Bernstein went to medical school in his 40s so he could practice medicine and show well how well his program worked on his own patients. It's worth pointing out that Bernstein is still practicing medicine in his 80s, having lived with his diabetes now for more than 70 years. Had the diabetes community been as open to the negative evidence as the positive, had they been perhaps less anxious to tell the world how successful their trial was, they might have come around much earlier to the flaws in their treatment philosophy. Their patients would have benefited. Disagreement is a good thing. From the 1950s onward, diabetes specialists could be confident of two ways their therapies were failing patients. They knew that insulin therapy made their patients fatter. That had been clear since the earliest studies on insulin at the University of Toronto. 
and they knew that telling their patients to eat less and exercise more didn't help them lose any weight. The doctors assumed it was the patient's fault, that the patients weren't willing to make the necessary commitments and sacrifices to doing what lean and healthy people seemingly did naturally. So the doctors continued to give patients advice that they knew wasn't as good as it should be, and they continued to prescribe insulin therapy in ever higher doses of insulin, even as they knew it would make their patients fatter. Not all doctors, though. Occasionally, a doctor would come along and decide there had to be a better way. Maybe it wasn't the patients failing to take the proper advice, but the advice itself that was wrong. Occasionally, a patient would get frustrated, try something new and different, and if it worked, the physician would realize that maybe he or she should pay attention, even if what the patient was doing went against what medical associations were advising. What happened, though, is that if these patients then embraced something different because it seemed to work for their patients, they would be written off as quacks. Doctors who wrote books about what they had learned, hoping it might benefit others, were dismissed as fad diet book authors who just wanted to cash in on their book sales. This thinking allowed the medical associations and other physicians to ignore what these doctors had to say, and so they didn't have to learn from them. It justified ignoring their books and articles. It's certainly true that a lot of people who argue with medical and scientific dogma are wrong, and even dangerously so. But once we assume that they all are, we never get a chance to learn otherwise. In the diabetes story, the physicians and the health associations all knew that their therapies were either failing or not doing a good enough job, and yet they discovered alternative approaches without putting in the effort to understand what they might be missing. Disagreement is a good thing. If we pay no attention to those who disagree with us, who think differently than we do, we lose the opportunity to fix what might be broken. Embrace uncertainty. Perhaps the most important lesson I've learned from writing now seven books on controversial science, five of them on nutrition and chronic disease, is that people often think the way to project expertise or authority is to state opinions as though they're facts. Medical doctors seem particularly prone to this tendency. Scientists are taught to avoid it at all costs, knowing that they're likely to be fooling themselves. Not that all of them follow this advice. There's plenty of bad science out there, but they should. Physicians and public health authorities know that if they're not forceful enough in their advice, people and their patients won't listen to them, and so nobody benefits. But what if their beliefs are wrong? What if their advice is wrong, which is quite possible? If so, far more harm can be done than good. One of the beneficial revolutions in medicine in the past 40 years has been teaching physicians to communicate uncertainty, to discuss with their patients not just what they know about the therapies, but all that they don't know, enlisting the patient in the often messy business of making a decision about treatment options. The best scientists I've ever interviewed, and I've interviewed many thousands, are the ones who use the most caveats when they talk about their research. They don't tell me what's true and what's not, as though it's white and black. They walk me through the evidence without embellishing it, and they discuss its shortcomings, what it doesn't tell them as much as what it seemingly does. And then they tell me what research has to be done to help fill the holes in their ignorance. They know that if they communicate certainty when the evidence doesn't justify it, they may start to fool themselves. Just because we don't often think of ourselves as scientists, Richard Feynman's first principle still holds when we have to understand something vital about our life. We must not fool ourselves, and we are the easiest people to fool. 
Thank you, Gary. Lots to chew on there, so to speak. Everyone, if you want to keep up on the latest thinking in health and science, get our Next Big Idea app and sign up for my weekly newsletter using the link in the episode notes. Okay, come on back tomorrow, and we're going to talk about space, but not this far-flung intergalactic stuff. We're going to stick closer to home and talk about our humble moon, which gets neglected by a lot of space nerds and is a lot more interesting than you might think. I'm Michael Kovnett. See you tomorrow.